Good morning. Well, Nissan has announced they're staying in England while the UK economy grew by half a percent in the last quarter. Does this mean that the panic over Brexit was wrong-headed or that it's the dead cat bounce before the madness begins? And as Tony Blair urges the 48% who voted to remain to organise, is a second referendum the only sane option? In studio this morning, Alan Jukes is a former leader of Fine Gael, Francis Ruan is former head of the ESRI and a member of the Scottish Brexit Advisory Panel, Karen Devine is is a lecturer in international relations in DCU and Sebastian Hamilton is Irish editor of the Daily Mail. Tell us what you think of the Tony Blair suggestion and if the UK can or should get a special deal from the European Union. And we'll maybe get everybody up this morning with a little bit of Tony Blair. If it becomes clear that this is either a deal that doesn't make it worth our while leaving or alternatively a deal that's going to be so serious in its implications people may decide they don't want to go, there's got to be some way, either through Parliament or through an election, possibly through another referendum in which people express their view. So the Daily Daily Telegraph greeted uh, that intervention this morning by saying that Tony Blair now believes that he is a rebel representing the insurgent forces of the Remain campaign, that plucky band of outlaws otherwise known as the entire political and cultural establishment. Sebastian Hamilton, what did you think of Blair's intervention? Well, to be honest, I think Tony Blair's likely to get his second referendum about the same time we find the weapons of mass destruction he promised us would be found in Iraq. Um, I, I think it shows how utterly divorced from reality Tony Blair has, has become. And his failure to understand kind of what this vote was about uh, uh, and what's happened subsequently. One of the things that everybody has missed here Uh, in talking about what this was about is that for an awful lot of people this is about a question of sovereignty you know it's not about money it's about sovereignty and if you look in particular at the people who who've been appointed to lead the Brexit but if you look also at the polls that have been taken in Britain since the Brexit result there was a great poll last week from from ITN which said 56% of Brits are prepared to take an economic downturn in return for restoring their sovereignty. And the problem with the Remain campaign was that they didn't get that. They insulted the intelligence of those people by saying, oh, but it'll cost you money. And Tony Blair really seems to be doing the same thing. So frankly, I think if anything, his intervention is going to uh, just encourage the pro-Brexit camp that what they're doing must be right because if Tony Blair says it's wrong, then it's it's definitely right. Um, (coughs) Karen Devine, I have to admit now while... I think Tony Blair is a discredited person that um, he has a point that if the negotiations go pear shaped and let's face it, they're not getting off to a good start, then maybe thinking again is the rational decision, even it's not how people feel right now. Yeah, I mean, look, we were, we were told to vote again on the Lisbon Treaty and we were told to vote again on the Nice Treaty. And I, I, I teach the EU, I've been teaching it for nearly 20 years uh, in universities. And I, I just see the same old patterns, really. It's the failure to accept a democratic decision of the people. Um, I, I agree with Sebastian. I think that Tony Blair as a spokesperson for the Remainers is an absolute disaster for the Remain campaign because he's completely discredited. But look at the negotiations. Um, they're always going to be... Uh, 
going in with hard positions. So, yeah, Theresa May is saying, no, it's a hard Brexit and we're leaving the EU. But at the same time, and she herself personally wanted to remain, remember that, but she has to make sure that the really the hardcore of the Conservative Party, of the Tory party, are not going to actually start to threaten her leadership in the first few months of her leadership if she says it can be a soft Brexit. So that's the first thing she has to deal with. The second thing is is the EU's reaction to this has been absolutely appalling. And when I mean the EU, I'm specifically talking about the elites like the president, like Jean-Claude Juncker. Um, I watched the debate in the European Parliament and I listened to what the MEPs were saying. Half the MEPs were saying, well, this was inevitable because we uh, as a collective have not responded well to the financial crisis, that people's living standards have collapsed, wages have gone down. And that is particularly true in the UK because the OECD shows that the UK is the third worst performing state in relation to the real drop in wages and in living standards. But how does leaving the EU make that situation better? Surely it because, only makes it worse. And here's the context. And this is this, the three myths I want to dispel during this programme about what the media has said about Brexit. And I actually did a talk down in um, Wexford Library um, about this. So I have all the data. And um, one of the things was that um, it was because basically British people are racist. And this was in the context of increased immigration. Well, if you look at the immigration figures, they are absolutely shocking. Um, and I did a reveal to the audience and there was a gasp when they saw the last three years of how this trend has gone. So really, for the first 30 to 35 years of Britain's membership of the EU, roughly 50,000 EU um, and mostly Eastern European workers came in to the country. In the last three years, it has gone from 50,000 to up to 270,000. So you're talking between a quarter of a million and a third of a million. So over three years, that's more than a million, nearly a million people that have come in on a base of 50 million. So that's two and a hundred. It is quite significant. Point is that is that net immigration or gross immigration that you're looking at there? Because I think that's a really important point and one that a lot of people don't note when they look at the international statistics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've looked at it in terms of net, and and that's what I'm saying. So you know, it's a quarter of a million net. So I'm saying that if you look at the first 35 years, actually, even though it's 50,000 that have come in, it has been steady in that there have been people leaving as well. So it has been. But the gross flows everywhere have gone up. I just I just think it's important to use the statistics very very carefully. But here's the impact of this, Francis. Whatever we talk about the statistics here, when people are on the street, okay, when they are competing for jobs, when they see that two in a hundred people are not British, that they're Eastern European, and it's the same. Look, listen, uh, uh, Karl Marx wrote about this in the mid 1800s. At that time, Irish workers were forced into the British labour market and wages went down as, as a result. And he said, look, I don't think the British workers hate the Irish because of this, but they hate the, the effect that this is. So when you look, whether we want to talk about whether it's, 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 it's a zero effect, when people are going for their jobs and you saw people interviewed on television who were saying this, and they were mainly sort of the, the semi-skilled and the blue-collar workers, because the people who actually voted to remain I looked at this again. Their average wage was like seven hundred pounds a week, compared to say two to three hundred pounds a week for others. So when you look at the, the the social class division, which is what's characterising this debate, you can see that there were very real reasons why people wanted to vote no. I, I and immigration was a key. Yeah, immigration yeah. was a key element. I, no, I of that. That and it's not yeah. that the British were racist either. No, I, and, I, and I don't think it necessarily is. But I think you know to go back to where you started. You, you talked about the failure to. Accept 
accept the democratic will of the people. My critique would be the failure to have actually informed the people in any kind of reasonable way. And I know that people in 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 the in the who should have been the responsible people in many ways in the statistical offices in other places needed to inform people over a longer period of time and not just in the run up to a referendum and if any country knows about referendums we do we know that people at the time are voting on a whole range of issues and not just the specific thing people in the UK many of them are very upset about what you say about the, the standard of their, their the standard of living of areas of the country which are kind of like the rust belt of the United States and those people voted you absolutely strongly in favour in favour of leaving. I can understand that, but I think that, you know one of the big issues that we have and we had here as well was that failure to actually put out all the issues on the table. And what about but was, that? What about that Marxist theory though? And I've heard it before, and I have a lot of sympathy with it that it's not racist for working class people to resent immigration when the the result of immigration and I note that Peter Sutherland is the uh, UN special rapporteur on migration you could throw in a neoliberal conspiracy there on why he would like um, um, lots of migration around the world which is that migration is the means by which wages are depressed so it's quite economically That's rational. That's an extraordinary statement. Right, I mean, Alan. I've heard conspiracy theories, <laughs> but you know, really that one takes the well, best. Unfortunately, Alan, the data no, shows Peter this Sutherland over centuries. Peter that Sutherland's that's a fact. position yeah. about migration uh, is very, very far from what you presented it. Uh, and the, the, the experience of history is very different uh, from what you're suggesting. History has a great many examples of large migration flows, the Irish to America and, and all the rest. And it wasn't planned to bring down the rate of wages. Karl Marx ignored a lot of things in his analysis. Mostly, those kinds of waves of migration are push. They're not pull, they're push, because there is some kind of drama going on in people's countries, or they're unemployed in their own countries, and they see employment opportunities elsewhere. And all of the data that I've seen uh, and the economic analyses of the effect of immigration from Eastern Europe into the UK has been that it has been a net benefit to the UK economy. For the only point of what sorry, people perceive. We, That's we, missing we, that point of what people perceive. We are once again getting drawn into a frankly pointless debate about what may or may not have influenced elements of the British vote. When I frank, I just think we need to be saying first. The thing we need to accept is that you know when Theresa May says Brexit means Brexit, she does actually mean it. She's not joking. There is no secret plan to accidentally make this not work and then go again. You know, and you have to understand the realities of of British domestic politics, <clears throat> which is that the the Conservatives are the dominant force in British politics. They have a majority in the Parliament. There is no room anywhere in the Conservative Party for any kind of Remain voices. They are going to push this through. And they're not going to listen, frankly, to economic arguments. They're not going to listen to that. So the questions the questions we have... I mean, obviously, there is a possibility that events, in, in particularly in this most volatile of international political periods, that events could, could change that. But we have to work on the basis that frankly, whether they voted on it because of I- immigration, whether they are or aren't racist, 
They said this is a thing they're going to do. They're not going to listen to the economic argument because that doesn't address the sovereignty. But, but issue. I just so want to say so. What we have to, what we have to do is prepare. I agree with, I agree with Sebastian. They're not going to listen now to the economic argument about what did or did not happen, what was or was not said during the campaign. They have decided, and we're now in 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 a state where we have to figure out what this is going to mean. I think Tony Blair, in whom you airily dismiss. You know, as a snake oil salesman, he actually did quite a number of good things. For actually, the UK that economy. wasn't my yes. term. Yeah. Somebody else but called okay. it that. Own, somebody um, else called it that. But he has put yeah. his finger on something, which is something that the British government and the other 27 member states need to look at. And that is what is the likely course of the negotiation? Mm. What kind of result is it possible that it might throw up? It is conceivable that at the end of two years of bad tempered negotiation, and that could be what we're looking at. The result will be um, a, a package of measures that is distasteful to the UK. I mean, I look on this whole Brexit thing as a negative sum game. It's going to mean disadvantages for everybody. On the one hand, it's likely that the UK will get a bit of a bloody nose and there'll be collateral damage for the rest of the EU. And the way I see it is this, that the bloodier the British nose, the less collateral damage there is for the rest of the EU and vice versa. If the British get a very good deal, I think the collateral damage politically and economically for the rest of the EU will be rather bad, especially politically. Do so you think it'd be good to hammer the Brits? I, I'm saying I'm not saying I'm not making a judgment about that. I'm saying well, that could is. Could you make a judgment? I'm about saying that is the likely way it will turn out. Which would you? Well, prefer? if you I saw prefer, the way John Claude Juncker be, frankly, I would prefer a soft Brexit uh, for the economic and social results. What that is that a soft Brexit? Bend. A soft Brexit is one that keeps the UK as near as possible uh, to the single market, the customs union. Um, and the other kind of social arrangements that are there. The problem is that if that happens and the British are seen to be able to negotiate their way out and almost get uh, become freeloaders on the, uh, in the European enterprise, then that will encourage other people inside uh, to take the same kind of view as the British. Hungary, I think, is a danger. There is a kind of a splittish movement going on uh, in the Netherlands. There is Le Pen uh, in France. There's the AFD and other offshoots in Germany. Uh, there's the whole Catalan issue. I just uh, think I if think you're so suggesting that, that in order to make the European project work, we, I'm have, not to, we have to no, batter the I'm, British into submission. Look, I think that stop, says there's a fundamental stop, stop problem at the heart. Say. No, I'm, I'm interpreting I'm what okay, I'm guys, saying. Okay, guys, one is a time. I'm looking, I'm looking at possible outcomes. Sure, and, and what, what I'm saying is that the, the talking about needing or requiring for the sake of, Euro of European cohesion to ensure that the Brits get get a really bad deal and, and, and kind of a lesson is taught to everyone else, I think demonstrates the fundamental problem with the heart of the European project, that if, if in order to persuade the other pupils to behave, you have to smack one pupil over that the head, not, then, then, then I don't, I I don't think that's, what, that's that a good way forward. That is not what I said. You are deliberately, you are deliberately misrepresenting In ordinary language, I'm okay, saying you know that the economic and social results that are likely from this yeah. 
are within our control and it depends on how we run the negotiation to make sure that the downsides are as small as they can be and any upsides are as big as well, they can I, be. Well, I, I think what we've seen here is a, a classic example of what's actually going to be played out because Alan Dukes is saying, no, we're not going to beat up the British, we're going to do what's right and that's what the EU will say. But in fact, they do want to have a pot shot at any country that wants to leave because the people who are like Jean-Claude Juncker who had a meltdown in the European Parliament behaved like a small child, had a tantrum name called sulked and then stormed out like Donald Trump would be jealous of that performance and then you see that the, the, the other side and Sebastian's side saying well you know let's see what can be achieved and I do think that essentially it's my belief in, in terms of the rationality of both sides which I think will kick in remember Jean-Claude Juncker and his ilk they're not directly elected by the people they're not going to be there in a couple of years time and I think in a couple of years time people who are in power and really it's going to be driven by other governments are going to have enough sense to say well let's see what we can do here and ultimately even though Theresa May is saying it's going to be a hard Brexit I do believe that Britain will stay within the single market but can I just make one point about one of the other myths I want to bust in this because the idea again to come back to this that Tony Blair said that well we'll have another referendum and then we're talking about the terms of negotiation and he's saying if it'll be a bad deal we'll have another referendum and we'll persuade people of the facts and Francis Rouen rightly said you know they didn't give enough information well the information that they were giving was actually quite inaccurate and I found that the leave side were actually more accurate and again I studied what they said but the idea of what the British people like being racist (coughs) when you look at data comparative data less than 20% of British people believe that immigrants are are having a negative effect they actually believe immigrants have a very positive (coughs) effect which goes to what Alan (coughs) Jukes was saying but the fact is is that as the EU continues to ignore the deterioration in living standards and as the EU broke its own rules which is why the British government are interested in leaving because they don't want to get involved in a fiscal union, they don't want to get involved in a banking union and in the European Parliament and people like Jean-Claude Juncker, their response to Brexit was, we need more integration and that is simply wrong. They need to deal with the reality of people's lives. Yeah, DEC has made the point on 53106. Interesting how the panellists in favour of immigration are well paid and probably unaffected by it in their own jobs. Francis Ruan, you made a point at the start about people not being informed and I just noticed yesterday Day, um, or rather a blogger that I read uh, noticed yesterday the top five most read stories on the Daily Telegraph website not the Daily Mail but you like this Sebastian one lonely men are increasingly turning turning to Siri for love and sexually explicit chat two Selassie hosted a big viewing party for all the great British bake-off bakers here are all the pictures three mother claims Sainsbury's cashier gender shamed her son for choosing a pink kinder egg four MacBook Pro Apple launches three new laptops tops with no standard USB port as it happened and five former Miss Finland becomes the 12th woman to accuse Trump of sexual assault. Now that's on the Daily Telegraph. The point being, you know, are people willfully ignoring experts and data and evidence and therefore engaging in this great act of self-harm. I mean, I think there's a very strong parallel between what's happening in the US and what happened in relation to Brexit. And it's that notion of somebody throwing out a bunch of facts without the fact checking that's there. And mm. I've seen different papers, obviously, to you, Karen, in terms of, of who is putting out which on both sides in relation to Brexit. And I think, that, you know, the, the issue really we have with politics today is that somebody can say something and there's no way that, the, Sarah, no matter how good you are, that you can correct every number that's there. And even your back team, even if you had a thousand of them, could do it. And I think it has it has raised a big issue that I think the Economist talked about a number of weeks ago, post, the post-truth society, is that notion of you can say anything, put a number to it, and absolutely then it seems 
completely yeah. factual. I think that's a real challenge for democracy. People want to, despite the fact that they're reading other things on the on 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 on, on the various uh, the various news sites, but that, but I think they do want to have that sense of of engagement in these issues. And to go back to Karen's point, there is a kind of an interesting issue that. You know, you, you're saying it's not. It's 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 it was. The point was made is it's not really an economic decision. It was about sovereignty, and it's not a, a migrant issue in in the sense of being anti and racist in any sense. But it is in a sense the the interplay between the economic and the political. It's the interplay yeah. between the migrants and and what see, people see as the perceived effect on their wages. The reality is the restructuring of British society, which has something to do with membership of the EU, but has a lot to do with globalization, yeah, which happened whether or not yeah. you had all those migrants. So there's a sense in which there's a whole set of, of, of influences that are going on in this very, very complicated world. And my biggest worry really with the UK is that some people think, let's think back to 1972 when we had sovereignty and we were in control of everything and everything then felt felt good. And it's a different world to 1972. This inevitability idea that somehow globalisation and, and there's nothing we can do about it. The EU is a legal entity. It has passed thousands and thousands of laws. It could, it could actually do something about this and it has failed to to do that. And no, can I just say there's one, no, the, I want to say one more point about okay. this because it's part of my myth busting here because we have, I want to go back to a point about statistics and how governments and those who we think we would like to believe release statistics. So one of them was in relation to, and everyone would have heard this, this idea that hate crimes went up in July after the after the Brexit, i.e. anyone who voted no, um, or anyone who voted to leave is a racist. So I decided to dig back and look at these hate crime statistics. And it turns out for the last, as long as they've been collecting it, hate crimes have peaked in every single July. Okay, so if you want to look back at April 2013 and you take that, (laughs) the number of hate crimes in April 2013 as a 100 base figure, it went up in um, July 2013 to 140. So it was like 40 basis points above that point in April. And if you look at it in July 2014, it went up to 150 basis points. If you look at it in July 2015, it went up 100 to 160. What's so going on in, in July? So can I just say, well, I don't know, maybe a lot of people are no, out on holidays, there's more drinking, the weather's good, but whatever it is, right? <laughs> those. Good. This is this hard <laughs> statistics. And yet... And yet, and persi- let me let me finish. Now, hold the on, point. we're talking about let numbers here, point. not statistics, and not is, statistical analysis. The point is yeah. that the governments will release whatever, and the EU will release whatever statistics they can and whatever information they can get their hands on to paint a, partic- a particular story yeah, that is negative. The, the British people Alan in that. are not racist because yeah. they voted to leave okay, the EU. But the interesting Alan. point is this is this is not really important because I'm I'm looking at Carl's piece of paper that she has it here uh, beside her here yeah. showing these figures. The trend is up year after year. Exactly. The trend is up. And that has now, nothing to do with the EU referendum. I want to go back to, to, to something that, that has to do with sovereignty and, you know, where this negotiation might go. Karen said a few moments ago, and passed over very quickly, the uh, UK will remain in the single market. I believe rationally that will be the ultimate. You believe rationally yes. that will be, yeah. Now, what's involved in that? And this is this is part of what's going to be the negotiation. Mm-hmm. I've actually written a piece about this that says how the UK can stay in the single market, how it could stay in the customs union if they had the chutzpah to make the proposal. The UK, Theresa May announced what I think is a piece of extremely able uh, political action, the Great Reform Bill. 
that says that we will now write into British law all of the European directives and so on that have been passed since they joined so that we have the same rules, regulations, standards as the, the other countries in the EU. And if we do that, they won't be able to say that we can't export to them on any grounds because we're different. So that's but, a sovereign choice to said, take that's on a their sovereign choice to do the same as everybody else because <laughs> there's an advantage. Very interesting. Yeah. That's, that's they really years of legislation that, that really they've already passed. That Sebastian, they democratically passed. Okay. I've listened to you for a long time. Okay. You've really listened. Think so, You've really listened. And she actually said that this will keep us in the single market and we will tell you when we want to decide to do something differently. And for that bit, we won't be in the single market. That will be a sovereign choice. I think the British um, could take the breath out of all the rest and achieve a soft Brexit by saying, once we've left, we will now unilaterally offer free access to the other 27 to our market on condition that you do the same for us. It will be very difficult for the other 27 to say no to that because free trading is part of the DNA of, of Europe. That gives you a soft Brexit. What does that mean? The Brits remain, uh, for the moment, in, in the single market. They remain in the customs union. They're outside the EU. They don't have to pay into the budget. And other people looking at that will say, we have done these things that are economically and socially beneficial in Europe because that's what European integration is about. And the British are now going to be still a part of it, but they'll freeload because they don't make any contribution to how we finance the whole thing. And politically, that is the danger that will have to be taken into account in the course of this negotiation. Okay, Sebastian Hampton is throwing his hands in the air. I will let him in after these ads. Apparently there are a few, which is good because it's paying for us to be here today. So stay with us. We'll be back later. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about Brexit this morning and in studio, Alan Jukes, former leader of Fine Gael, Francis Ruan is former head of the SRI and a member of the Scottish Brexit Advisory Panel, Karen Devine, lecturer in international relations in DCU and Sebastian Hamilton is Irish editor of the Daily Mail. And uh, someone has said, if it's about sovereignty, what about Scotland? And we'll come to that. Um, Sarah, many Remain campaigners are working in the city of London, sitting at computers, fiddling around with other people's money and actually producing nothing and buying all products made with cheap labour from China. The leave people are the real workers doing manual work in Midland and Sunderland and as James Joyce said he could not understand how people who wrote with a pen could earn more than a man who works ma- who works with manual labour. We migrated due to starvation Anne. and actually that backs up Alan's point about migration being a push thing not mm. a pull. Alan it is most definitely not a net benefit if the native population experience huge difficulties in accessing health, housing and education services and that's from Dan. Uh, when the closeted rich classes say that mass immigration is a net beneficiary to economies, they fail to mention the balkanised working class communities it creates that they never have to live in or deal with. Um, and then finally, Jerry says Norway pays a premium to access the EU single market, but still doesn't want to join the EU. That says a lot about the EU. Viva Brexit! In <laughs> fact, <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back to um, a bit about behavioural economics in a minute. Um, Sebastian, you know, the way these negotiations are going to play out, you know, I honestly do believe, probably like Karen, that in the end, the imperative to carry on and trade will supersede emotion. 
But when you see things like uh, Michelle Barnier, who's the head of the EU negotiation team, telling Reuters yesterday that he thinks all negotiations with the UK should be held through French, you, you know, you <laughs> well, really I mean, have to and, wonder. And this, this, this is why, you know, uh, you know, f- for all of us, Alan's kind of experience and wisdom on this. I think when you're using a term like freeloaders, before you've even started negotiation to discuss, to describe one side of the negotiating, it's that language that I think is so unhelpful. You know, and the thing we've got to remember, there's two things we've got to remember. One is that sovereignty is not a thing that you can put a price on. And, you know, the example I always use is if you'd, if you'd, if, if Alan had spoken to the leaders of the 1916 rebellion the day on Easter Sunday and said, lads, this is a bad idea because it will have negative effect on our economy. Leaving the British Empire will be bad for our economy. You know, I don't think he'd have got a very positive response. And I think the Irish people clearly in the ensuing years took a decision that national independence was more important to them than the economic benefits of being in the British Empire. So I think we've got to understand that about the Brits, that you hitting them over the head with the economic with the economic stick will not work. And um, the second thing we've got to understand is that, you know, Ireland is more profoundly affected, in my view, by Brexit potentially than Britain is. And There are tremendous things that Ireland can be doing both within the negotiations and in terms of preparation, you know, and there's there's a fantastic kind of honest broker role that Ireland could achieve for itself. You know, remember the Brits when they leave, they're still going to want a friend within the EU. They're going to want someone who can represent their cause. You know, so there's so many advantages we can take. And I think that, 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 that Alan... Or anybody else kind of describing either side as freeloaders is, is not beneficial. And I think what we've got to try and do is recognise why the Brits don't want to be in Europe. Right, recognise that a lot of Europeans, certainly within the Commission, are frankly delighted to see them go. I think they've been a pain in the ass for the last 25, 30 years. You know, very happy to wash our hands of them. And we need to bring those two people together and make them understand right, but do, would that you, this is about more people right, than, than but, them. But Nobody's so saying that they're happy to get rid of the Brits. I mean, the, oh, no, that, really I've heard that from that. the Commission think, a lot. Yeah. So actually you should be a bit careful about Irish history. A number of the, the Irish 1916 people felt that there would be economic advantages in getting out of the British Empire. And one of the reasons that Ireland was so keen to join the European Economic Community in 1972 when we voted was that we felt it was a very good way of getting out from under the excessive influence of the UK on our economy. We wanted to find ways to diversify our economy. And yet we joined the euro and we're suffering and because of the sterling difference now, which was a mistake. If you read the revolution papers, Alan, we gained, the big we debate from, at the we time is this will, this, will, okay. this will harm Ireland but I mean, and again, nobody in the elites is going the exact opposite happy that the British are leaving. Boys, Francis, please. Can, can we look kind of a little bit forward rather than backward? And I, I mean, we can t- we can all pick out the particular pieces of history that are that are relevant at this point. And and you know, it's not it's not a simple it's not a simple story. Yeah. But I think there's a, sort of to take this just to a slightly different level. If we look at the last twenty years in the context in which 
where we are now in relation to Britain and relation to some of the, the unhappinesses within Europe. One of the things I think that has been a problem has been the overemphasis for looking at success on things like GDP per head, GMP per head or whatever. And if you look at what's been done in the in the UN in relation to the sustainable development goals, which the EU now is going to look at, at trying to see what it means for Europe, one of the things they're doing is looking at a whole range of distributional metrics to judge how things are going on. We have actually singularly failed to do that up to this point in any satisfactory way. Actually, in Ireland, we've probably done it better than, than, than some countries. We've paid more attention to it. But what that really means is that getting into any kind of future negotiation and thinking about this requires thinking about a much wider range of economic and social implications of whatever the solutions are. Now, I would say it's absolutely the case that we are disproportionately, hugely affected by, by, by Brexit. And on that, are we doing enough to get in the game and and f- and fight our case? Now, I, I know, for example, that, you know, Ireland and England have lots of bilateral institutions due to the peace process. Do you see a sense of urgency in the government, the necessary sense of urgency to seize this moment to reduce the harm and perhaps even seek advantage? You can't, you can't judge really what one sits on the outside to, to know. But all I would say is that it's really important that we are proactive in these discussions. I mean, if there's one thing that Nicola Sturgeon has shown in Scotland is that, you know, you may not be in control of your destiny, but if you're in any negotiation, you have to have your homework done. But what you can Scotland the, do? Like well, they're part you, of the UK. What can she actually do to change things? Well, I mean, there, there, one way or the other, been, if she, if, if, assuming, assuming Scotland stays within, for example, the UK, she will be looking to renegotiate her relationship with London to take account of the impact of leaving the EU on Scotland. For that, you need to know and understand exactly how the Scottish economy is working, what the implications of, of, of moving out are. Scotland exports heavily into Europe. It exports very different products to the rest of the UK into Europe. Therefore, if there are going to be negotiations between the UK and Europe, Scotland has to make sure that that, that its, its products are as looked after, given that they're minority products in the total package. The point I suppose I'm trying to make here is that you need to, to be proactive in coming up with solutions and suggestions, even though you're the smaller party. So, for example, on the island of Ireland, whatever solutions are going to come out to how we manage if there is a hard Brexit on the island, I think we have to be at the preparation and we have to be thinking it through because it's small beer, relatively speaking, to the UK agenda. So we're the people who have to put the hard work in to actually come up with options and possibilities. And Karen Devine, on that, the huge issue for us will be, is there going to be a hard border between the Republic and Northern Ireland? So JJ in Knockline has texted, good morning, Sarah, engaging discussion, which is certainly one word for it. How does the panel suggest one copes with migration into England from Northern Ireland via the Republic of Ireland? You know, if we become the border with the EU, big changes. Yeah, I mean, look, I was watching the television, I can't remember when, <laughs> it was probably about a month ago, yeah. but uh, I was watching a programme and it was about um, the Irish Border Police and there was a chap that had come into Dublin Airport and um, he hadn't got the required visa um, so he was put in a waiting room and he was basically sent back on the next plane to London. I mean, this happens all the time. So, um, we have uh, for example, the um, US, if you're going to fly to, to New York and you manage to get a morning uh, flight out of Dublin Airport, 
cards, you can go downstairs and you can go through US immigration. So the idea that um, this would somehow be, uh, again, a catastrophe, I mean, is, is not true. You put in the administrative procedures required. But I don't see, and again, I, obviously I'm alone on this, but I, I'm happy to be alone in my view that <laughs> I do believe that, you know, yeah. ultimately, um, once the, you know, the, 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 the Article 50 will be triggered in March and then it's a two year process after that. And just like in the border with Northern Ireland, I don't see how the other 26 member state governments are going to be so invested in that little strip of land that is bordering six counties that they want to have something really hard in it. Yeah, We're an island, okay, geographically. Yeah. Can I just make this point? Yeah, yeah. We're an island. We already have in place immigration procedures and it'll simply, simply be ramped up to deal with other other member states' uh, populations if needs be. Yeah. But I, again, I actually agree with Alan. I do believe that, not in the form that of your plan necessarily, but I do believe that Britain, the UK, will remain within the single market through the economic area. Alan? Well, I, I, I think that the the, uh, the immigration thing, we'll have to ramp it up, as Karen says, yeah. But, but what's involved in it? Ironically, Ireland and the UK were the only two member states that in 2004, on the enlargement of the EU, said immediately all uh, EU citizens from the new member states will have freedom to access Ireland and the UK, come and live, work, found families here. And ironically, the, the British want to, to pull out of that. But what will actually happen is, uh, the cases that Karen talked about are people who arrived from somewhere else without without the necessary visa. Uh, you don't need a visa if you're a Romanian or a Bulgarian uh, coming to Ireland, or anybody from the EU or Poland. Yeah. Or now, the problem arises um, when people from Eastern European member states arrive in Ireland and then want to go to the UK. Yeah. Currently, they have a perfect right that you have to show your passport at the desk when you're at the, the boarding gate for the plane. But that's just so the airlines know they're not going to have to cart you off somewhere else when you arrive in the UK. But from whatever time Brexit actually happens and the UK decides to operate whatever new controls it has on immigration from Central and Eastern Europe, and they've said they want to do that because they want to limit immigration in some way, then somewhere somebody has to decide that this person who has arrived in the in the Republic and is now going to the UK is or is not entitled to go into the UK. I believe that that should not be our job in Ireland because we have no problem with people from Eastern Europe coming in here. If they want to go to the UK, it's up to the UK uh, to sort it out. If we manage and work is going on in this and I think the government should be commended uh, for for having taken some steps to get a discussion going between ourselves and Northern Ireland, maybe in a cack-handed way (laughs) but their intention is good. What happens when those people go across the border into Northern Ireland? In Northern Ireland, I don't see any disposition to have a hard border there with customs posts. And that means that there's going to have to be somewhere else in the UK where they operate those controls. I've made the point before, it's been brought to my attention, between 1938 and the end of the war, there was a system in place where there were um, immigration checks on entry into Great Britain from Northern Ireland, 
that might be a solution now and that would what avoid about the need Sebastian for a Hamilton what about that it's not at Newry it's at Belfast so people can come and go within the it island of Ireland or Stradbroke or one of those places yeah that so you have bo- uh, border checks customs well, checks there but see I think this this, this illustrates that the, 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 the real intractability of the problem is that we can all say and I think everybody actually broadly agrees for the island of Ireland we don't want a border but as Alan said the Brits on some level are going to have to and are going to want to stop immigrants coming in that they haven't policed you know they're going to have a problem with the loyalist community if they make uh, British passport holders in loyalist areas of Belfast go through a border check on their way into the UK and the other thing is I think there's 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 a kind of misunderstanding here of, of, of the fact that you know we won't be making that decision the Irish government will not sit down with the, the, you know, the Assembly and the British government and make that decision on the border. The EU will make that decision. And that's why I think it's so important to not get, you, you know, that we are working <coughs> on every level. And to bring you back to the question of is there enough urgency, I really don't think there is. And, you know, a week ago, the Irish Daily Mail floated the idea that we should have a dedicated cabinet-level Brexit minister with a Brexit department that is dedicated solely 100%, 24-7, every day of the year, to this and only this, to lobbying and to addressing problems. And actually, slightly to my surprise, we have had the support of s- dozens of business groups, business leaders, the Dublin Airport Authority, Retail Ireland, the Irish Export Association, the Ro- Road Haulage Association, the Small Firm... All these business organisations who are the ones who will be most affected all saying, yes, that's what we want. We want a central place to go. We want a department and a minister dedicated to it. I've heard from from kind of, you, you know, below cabinet level government ministers that they would love to have that focus. And yet the government response is absolutely not, you know. And you almost get a sense of their saying, well, it wasn't our idea, so we're not going to accept it. This is so important for all our futures. And for them to frankly put, whether it's party politics or, or, or personal pride ahead of saying, you know what, that's what we need to do to focus our efforts, I think is really alarming for our futures. OK, I'm going to take a break. We'll be back with final comments after these. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about Brexit this morning. <clears throat> Alan Jukes, Francis Ruan, Karen Devine and Sebastian Hamilton are all in studio. Sean says, would it be possible to form a new type of free trade agreement with the UK post-Brexit and still remain in the EU? I think the answer is no. We have to do um, agree as a bloc. Paddy says, James Brokenshire, the Northern Secretary, has not been put on the UK Cabinet Brexit Committee. That shows how low a priority Northern Ireland's position is with Theresa May. Um, Karen Devine, you wanted to come back to Tony Blair and his proposal that... Look, look, if these negotiations go pear-shaped, if the deal is really bad, actually having a second referendum or an election would be a rational and fair um, option for the British people. Yeah, again, I suppose uh, two points really. One is to, again, dial down the drama around um, the Brexit debate and also to bring a bit of realism into it in terms of hard data because even if they have a second referendum, um, one of the things the media were saying in the aftermath of the of the, the first Brexit, um, I don't think there will be a second Brexit because the British people will not actually, uh, you know, although in Ireland we, we, we suffered it twice, the British people, there's no way that they will actually... Even 
though the price of Marmite has already gone up from uh, two thirty-five a jar to two sixty-four, this is the kind of stuff that people really care about. Yeah, I saw the Marmite thing, all right. But um, <laughs> you know, look again. Let's look at the data because um, I think it was ninety-five percent of the people who voted to remain, um, or no, it was ninety-six who voted to remain, are, are would not change their mind, and ninety-five percent of those who voted to leave would not change their mind. So that's the first thing because there was all this drama of people were crying and saying they regretted their decision and they only voted to leave because they thought they were going to remain. Nonsense. Everyone's happy with their decision. The second point is that they ran another uh, poll to see uh, if if the if the if the result would change, um, and so they had a, a sort of a, another referendum. Although it's only a poll with all those limitations, and the result was the same. It was a majority in favour of leaving. And to go back to like Tony Blair and the fact that he is so out of touch, really, with what people are looking for, what British people are looking for. Um, I looked at your barometer survey, so it's a poll taken in every EU member state, and. We looked at. I looked at the comparison between how British people evaluated how the EU was capable was if it was capable of dealing most effectively with the financial crisis. Just nine percent. Oh, actually, no. It was six percent of British people who said that it was most capable of. The next country was Sweden at eight percent, and they're not in um, the euro. The next were the Danes at nine percent, and they're not in the euro. So for me, the point about Brexit is the British and the, well, the government in particular um, were very upset of how the EU decided to handle financial crisis by bringing in more integration through the fiscal compact and the stability mechanism. They said no to those treaties. So what happened? The EU decided to go ahead illegally and have these treaties outside of the EU legal framework. And the British were so shocked by this. They want to avoid that kind of thing happening again. And that's one of the main political reasons why the elite wanted to get out. It's not illegal about that. It was completely illegal. And even Jean-Claude Pyrrhus... Okay, yeah, right. the head yeah. of legal then services said it was it's illegal. I'm going yes. to bring it's in France. It's illegal. illegal. It's okay. breaking so the Lisbon Karen. Treaty rules. No. Specifically, it also Karen. breaks the no bailout mm. rule. Karen, um, or Francis rather, Article yeah. 50, they say, is going to be triggered in March. The rule is that once it's triggered, you either come to a negotiation or within mm. two years, you're out. That's it. There is actually no deal. If it is a hard Brexit, if it comes to that, and it took Canada seven years to come to a trade agreement with the EU, should we go to which is in our better economic self-interest? I think our, I think we're where we are where we are at the moment, and I think we'd be very unwise to be contemplating or discussing other options other than staying in the EU. And given the strategy that we've had and what we've developed as an economy over the last over the last fifty years, but I like the phrase that 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 um, Karen used about dialing down the drama. I think it's absolutely right. Dialing down the drama and dialing up the analysis and the strategic thinking about what to happen is what's necessary. And one of the things which I believe very strongly is that both businesses in Ireland and the Irish government should be looking at the range of no regret strategies that are there for them. I think it's a really important thing to do. We've a difficult one to play. We want a soft Brexit because it's in in our interest in the island and given the structure of our economy and the interdependency with the UK. On the other hand, we want we want to, to stay if we st- if we want if we stay within Europe, which I think we should do, then we want to have our relationship with other people not undermined by that. So it seems to me the government has a lot of work to do, and I'd agree with Sebastian that there is a, a strong need to get 
real focus on what role we're actually playing at governmental level. Right. But businesses also have to do the same thing right. and work but out what's good for them. Alan Jukes, you see, I don't think that history is this rational series of linear events that really all these characters are quite Shakespearean and that it is all drama and it is all about Donald Tusk and Barnier and all these guys who are feeling really hurt that the UK has done this terrible thing to them, even though in the eyes of the UK they're making their own decision. Yeah. So the drama won't get dialed down. Rationality won't take over and emotion is going to leave us in a really, really bad place in two years' time. Well, you know, just a few quick points. Politicians are people too. Uh, they have the same kind of emotions as anybody else. That's that's humanity. I agree largely with, with entirely with what Francis has just said. But two, two more brief points. Uh, to Karen, I'd have to remind her that the UK had a financial crisis all on its own outside the euro. The other interesting thing, which I think is, you know, where the politics come into this, is when we get to the end of a negotiation, what kind of process is going to be used in the UK, you know, to tie up the deal? Will it be a parliamentary vote or will it be, what was it called, the royal prerogative that, that the Prime Minister uses? And I think that will be an issue uh, f- for the UK um, the mother of parliaments, I think, will rightly want to have some say in, in what the conclusion is. And that could be uh, another kind of layer of political yeah. complication. And Sebastian, on that, let's say she gets a deal, Theresa May gets a deal, it was forced to put it to parliament and they say no. Then what? Well, look, then then, then, then everything changes. Uh, uh, and probably the, at, at that point, I would say you're probably being forced towards a second referendum. I think if 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 it happens if it happens under this Conservative government, you have to remember they have a majority. There is no voice within the Conservative Party for Remain. And anyone who was seen to be using the terms of the deal as a way of scuttling Remain, as a way of going against the supposedly, you know, democratic view of the British people would never be forgiven within politics. So I actually I think you know, we're, we're pinning our hopes, as it were, on the British Parliament finding a way of turning against this. I think that's not as likely uh, uh, as we would, as we might want to imagine. So, um, again, I think it comes back to the fact that, look, everything we've seen happen over the last few years, from, from, from the financial crisis to Syria to Trump to Putin, shows that we can't predict the future. The best thing we can do is prepare for it. And... You know, again, this comes back to the fact that my concern is really not what where, where Britain is in, in the future. You know, I've I've three young kids. One just started junior infants. One just started playgroup. I want them to grow up in an island that is prosperous as well as being caring and family friendly and all those things. And that's only going to happen if we take this more seriously, address the issues more concretely, and put ourselves at the centre of all the negotiations. And that's our final word. Sebastian Hampton, Francis Ruan, Karen Devine, Alan Jukes. Many thanks for coming in to me this morning. Aidan McKelvey produced. Bobby Kerr is up next. Marion Kennedy was in sound. Thank you for listening.